0: Welcome back to the Real Weird Podcast, Episode 2, The Scottish Play in the Sengoku Jidai, Throne of Blood. Welcome everyone. Today we're going to be hopping back in time for a classic of the samurai movie genre, Akira Kurosawa's 1957, Throne of Blood. Which, if you couldn't guess by the title, and if you didn't know, it's essentially just an adaptation of Macbeth. um, Changed a little bit to fit the Japanese setting. There's... You know, aside from the language and setting, there's several other creative liberties taken. The uh, the three witches, or the weird sisters, as they're called, they're in this case a single spirit with a lot of motifs around spinning uh, spider webs, especially. That's a bit of um, symbolism that we're going to get to later. Uh, the overthrown king, a daimyo in this case, which was just a local lord in feudal Japan, he only had a single son rather than two. Uh, the ending is also significantly different as well, which we'll get to. Um, and I also wanted to say this up front, and this is what makes it very, very interesting, is that in addition to the basic outline just being a Japanese version of Macbeth, a lot of the style elements and performances, um, they're drawn from no, which is a type of traditional stage play. Um, the way to think about it is that this is the older version of Japanese theater. It was popular, uh, for a long time. It started as early as the 12th or 13th century, and it was the dominant one for a while until Kabuki came along. Uh, no, was still popular with the nobility and the higher ups. Uh, Kabuki was more the commoners thing, but it was generally a lot more austere as far as the, um, the stage decoration went, the performances went. You'd usually have like maybe two or three people uh, performing the play and a chorus, which was uh, similar to the ancient Greeks, was just there to uh, fill in the blanks for the audience, explain stuff that wasn't really coming out in the play that you couldn't really show because of the um, uh, constraints of technology or just the space of the stage. Uh, there's a lot of especially spiritual themes in no theater, especially from Buddhism and from Shinto uh, mythology, which is the native Japanese religion. Most of the music as well in the in the movie is done with a flute and drum in the style of an old-fashioned no play. And as I mentioned with the chorus, um, there's a sort of musical chant, that book ends the movie. It starts and it it starts and it ends it basically. Uh, once the opening credits are out of the way, it has that music, and then that music comes up again at the very end of the film. So, some of the one of the major themes is a very big deal in Buddhism, and that is the emphasis on impermanence of things. And I'm drawing, full disclosure, I myself am not a Buddhist. I'm remembering this solely from uh, my philosophy classes when I was in college. Uh, we did, and one of them was an intro to Eastern philosophy. So this is what I'm drawing that from. But to very, very oversimplify things, the main idea of Buddhism in the Four Noble Truths is that people suffer because we have worldly attachments and we experience anxiety and fear over losing them and that fear of losing them drives us to push this pain onto other people. Cause we think that they're going to be the cause of it. So the idea of Buddhism is to walk what's the called the middle path between, you know, hedonism, indulgence, and between, between that and the ascetics, you know, the living like a monk, basically you don't want to live like a monk, but you also don't want to just, lay about and just eat food all day drink yourself silly and not get anything done Buddhism just says the best way in life is to just walk that middle path and just accept that everything's gonna end nothing stays the same very long and just temper all of your enjoyment with that thought and it'll you know just somehow lead to less anxiety overall down the road and that's how eventually you um escape the cycle of reincarnation and achieve nirvana, you perfect the practice of that belief. And the way this factors in is, you know, not really spoiling anything here. Uh, Lord Washizu, who's the Macbeth character in this, he dies at the end, obviously. But it talks about his spirit still wandering, unable to move on, because... You know, he died violently. He died knowing what power was and having done so much heinous shit to get it. And he wants to have it again. And presumably, if he were like that, especially with how duplicitous he was, how, how he backstabbed to get his way to the top, presumably as what's called a preta. This is a being in Hindu and Buddhist cosmology that usually gets translated as a hungry ghost. These are the spirits of people who are deceitful and greedy and jealous in real life, and especially if you hurt others to get. Just to indulge those impulses in life. And they're cursed to wander and to hunger for very, very disgusting things and substances such as corpses and, well, literal shit. And to add further to that theme, the opening teases it. The aforementioned music is set to a misty hillside and there's a large stone marker, and the kanji on it reads, well, the subtitles say, here stood Spiderweb Castle, so we're getting a little preview of the end, but as one commentator on it, on this movie said, it's a very circular movie, because the kanji, even though the subtitles say, here stood Spiderweb Castle, it literally just says Spiderweb Castle. So you're seeing that stone marker, and you're not seeing the castle. So, if you didn't have those subtitles, you'd be thinking, okay, is this a marker for something important that is going to happen? Has it not happened yet? Has it already happened and we just didn't know? The the movie doesn't really give that away itself. It's just the subtitles that say that. So, like I said before, the thing that makes this a wonderful adaptation of Macbeth, in fact, despite the creative differences, this is... Uh, generally lauded to be one of the better film adaptations of the play. Um, I don't think... The interesting thing is that he actually wanted to make this play uh, for a very long time. I've seen reports that said he wanted to do this at least as far back as making Rashomon, which is one of his most famous films since so 1950. But apparently he wanted to do that even further back because um, there's reports that he actually delayed the project because he heard that Orson Welles had actually done a adaptation himself. And I mean, Shakespeare was a big um, literary influence. Um, not influence. Uh, more so, it was seen as a good example of foreign literature to be brought in during the Meiji Restoration, which was basically the time between... It it was the era when the samurai finally lost the last bit of their power, and this was like the 1860s, basically. The emperor became um, no longer the de facto head of state. He was the head of state now. Um, So a lot of what they did was that they sort of modernized without westernizing, but they did bring in stuff from outside Japan. And especially as uh, learning English became a more important thing to uh, continue that project, Shakespeare was brought in as a good example of, um, you know, teaching English literature. Uh, so according to Kurosawa, this was actually his fam- favorite one. And uh, he actually kept that same attitude even if um, <laughs> even if like distribution of this stuff became illegal after World War II started. But yeah, Kurosawa put his own spin on the matter. He felt that, and I can see this even despite the cultural differences and time uh, differences, he felt that medieval Scotland and fe- feudal Japan had similar, you know, political, social, and economic issues, which, you know, I could see. He felt that uh, synthesizing the two, you know, the broad outline of something that was originally written about Scotland and putting it in a Japanese setting, well, it could. Work very well, and it would be a good cautionary tale, as he saw it. I'm assuming against um, you know, ambition, and in some reports, he felt it would be a good foil to his earlier movie Ikiru, which is um. Full disclosure: I amazingly have not seen that one yet. I've heard it's one of his best, but it's a in contrast to a lot of his other work. It's a drama in present day. Well, you know, contemporary. It was the '50s. Um, about an aging bureaucrat who's just, you know, reminiscing about his life. Uh, there was one historian who wrote relatively recently about the film that Shakespeare's original dealt with, and I'm quoting here, as it comments on questions of legitimacy, masculinity, and war, unquote, that resonated with the English in the early 17th century and Kurosawa's slight differences made the movie engage with contemporary debates in Japan about the state of the nation's industry and bureaucracy. I should mention, I referred to the castle in here as Spiderweb's Castle, and that's basically what it's referred to as. But that's also a reference to that. A reference to, uh, well, what was contemporary in Japan at the time, and the Japanese title is actually Kumanosujo, which means the castle of the spider's web. And apparently, a spiderless cobweb was how the Japanese referred to the country in the immediate post war era. Because, I mean, the emperor had his powers devolved. I mean, he sort of had them devolved a little bit anyway, just because the military was running basically everything. But he had his powers that were even normally dissolved anyway. The military had to be drastically downsized. Um, The government was completely overhauled. Uh, Basically, just it was a tangled mess and no one knew who was in charge anymore. So, yeah, I guess a spiderless cobweb is a pretty apt summary. All right, so regarding the plot, I'm not going to linger here very long because, I mean, like I said, there's differences from the play in terms of the plot, but if you've read the play, or seen it on stage, or even just seen any like film adaptation, you know the premise. There's a soldier, he receives a prophecy that he will one day become king, or whatever the proxy of it is in that setting. He's promoted, and sees the initial part of said prophecy come true. He continues on, at first prompted by his wife, who is a... Very conniving, scheming person. And his ascent is marked by murder and plots, and eventually he's slain after succumbing to paranoia. That's that's basically the broad outline of the Macbeth play, and it's been done like hundreds of times since. Um, I mean, I don't think Kurosawa actually saw any... I don't think he saw the Orson Welles version, even though that came out like nine years before his. I think he had only ever seen it acted on stage or, you know, he read the play, translations. I don't know how good his English was, but I'm assuming either he knew enough to read the play or he had it translated. Um, But yeah, there's been adaptations of Macbeth all over the place. I've seen two different versions by the BBC, one of which was like, you know, Cold War by the looks of it. It was starring Patrick Stewart, and they did not... In some, you know, they were kind of hammering you over the head with... Yeah, we're basically basing him off Stalin. <laughs> I've seen a gangster version called Men of Respect, starring John Turturro. Uh You might... um, Well, I forget some of his more famous stuff, but most recently he was uh, in The Batman by Matt Reeves. It was uh, Carmine Falcone. Uh. Yeah, there's just... Basically, if you have a setting that lends itself well to conniving, backstabbing, Macbeth can basically be slotted into it, and you just need to change the names. Uh, yeah, one of the differences, as I mentioned, beyond the obvious, is that the daimyo who's overthrown only had one son, uh, rather than two, as, you know, King Duncan did. Source material. Um... There's a sort of okay. There's a character who sort of parallels Macduff, the you know guy who eventually kills Macbeth with the you know prophecy loophole. Uh, his name is Noriyasu, but the reason I say he's not really Macduff is because he fills some of that role, but his family wasn't killed, at least not explicitly, in this version, and he's not responsible for Washizu's death again. <laughs> I'm sorry if I'm throwing the names around, but Washizu, again, is the Macbeth character. Um, Yeah, Washizu was actually killed, sort of gang-killed by his own men, in a scene memorable for both the overall execution as a bit of cinema. And I kid you not, uh, Toshiro Mifune, who was the guy playing him, yeah, let's just say Kurosawa didn't like to fake things. And Mifune, being very, very dedicated to his role, used gestures to indicate the direction of his moment of his movements. And I want you and if you watch this movie at the end scene, when all of his men turn on him and just start feathering him with arrows, I want you to keep in mind one thing. The only arrow that was faked was the one that killed him. The one that he got in the neck. All the others were live arrows that were being shot at him, and the ones that actually hit him were hit him in areas that were padded. Yeah. That's uh, <laughs> I mean, there's dedication to your role and then there's just straight up lunacy, but you know, I, I have to commend Mifune for that because it's just amazing. Uh, yeah. Like I said earlier, the Michael Jack, who is the um, Japanese cinema expert that was on the criterion release, uh, he did the commentary for it. He was the one that brought up that point about the stone marker with the castle's name on it. And he's the one that described this as being a very, very circular film. Essentially there's the bookend where it's the the stone marker, there are scenes in the woods and then exteriors of the castle scene. And it's more or less symmetrical in terms of the uh, you know staging and locations and the blocks. And I think his interpretation of it was that this movie only takes place over the course of a few days, whereas in Macbeth we don't know how long it's really been. But this one, this adaptation is a lot darker and more fatalistic than Macbeth. Uh, Washizu doesn't have as much choice in the matter as Macbeth did. Macbeth made bad decisions, but Washizu was more or less pushed into them. Uh, Kurosawa fills in the blanks. A lot of the time for things that Shakespeare left ambiguous, like you know the motive for why Washizu would you know overthrow the daimyo. Uh, Macbeth, it's kind of left ambiguous just because, well, it's prophecy and his wife is ambitious. That's basically it. But in this case, the Lady Macbeth character, Lady Asaji, um, after Washizu gets his new lordship, his new command. He begins to needle him. He begins to make him paranoid. And he's like, and, you know, she begins to suggest that, uh, I'm blanking on the Lord's name here. I think it's Suzuki. But he suggests that Suzuki might grow, you know, paranoid and worry that Washi's is getting too much power. I mean, after all, Lord Suzuki killed his predecessor, and he's already killed one guy who tried to elevate himself in that same way. So, you know, maybe it might be a good idea to, you know, take his head before he takes yours. And, you know, Washizu is just brushing it off. It's like, oh, stop it, you're being paranoid. Or, okay, no, not even that. He's just flat out uh, telling his wife, yeah, stop talking like that, because even contemplating that is treason. (laughs) But then, you know, suddenly the Lord's all entourage, you know, shows up in the area, and he's worried that his wife's actually correct course, then it just turns out to be a false alarm. The Lord's actually on a hunting party, and he's just staying for the night. But, you know, it's all of that, and it's sort of blended together well to give him an actual motivation for the betrayal instead of just, you know, making him blindly ambitious on his own. Uh, Other things that are inserted for the sake of the more cohesive story is that after the Lord's killed, and it's done basically the same way. The guards around him, uh, they're given sort of drugged um, alcohol, and they fall asleep. Uh, Then, you know, the Lord's killed, and then they're sort of painted with the blood to make it look like they did it. And then Washizu kills them, you know, as a way to uh, sort of paint himself as the Avenger of the Fallen Lord. And guess what? Said Lord's son, Noriyasu, they don't buy it. They don't buy the explanation given, they think he's full of shit, and instead of simply slipping away to a foreign land like the two sons in the original play did, they actually try to rebel. Now we don't see a battle scene, but we see the aftermath where their soldiers are fleeing. They're riding their horses to uh, Spiderweb's castle. And... They actually try to appeal to uh, Miki, General Miki, who is the sort of Banquo figure in this. He's uh, Washizu's uh, trusted friend. And they're actually a lot more on equal footing than Macbeth and Banquo were in the original play. But, you know, Miki tells them, basically tells them piss off and actually fires arrows at them when they, you know, ask him to open the gate to the castle. But they do get away. Uh, Washizu comes in and realizes that the whole place is in a state of mourning because uh, we don't actually see her on screen but the former lord's wife uh, we find out through dialogue that well upon receiving word of what happened to her husband, she killed herself she committed suicide rather than see her enemy take the castle Who who could she be referring to, I wonder now so Kurosawa makes it clear, and for the audience, just in a very subtle way in Universe, that basically no one really bought the story that Washizu gave about the assassination, and even his best friend Miki here, like he has a, he has a suspicions of his own. Basically, Kurosawa also takes uh, Lady Asaji; she's the Lady Macbeth character in this case, and let's be honest and I'm going to be completely honest here, Asaji is worse than Lady Macbeth. She is a far nastier person. Like, in the original, in Macbeth, Macbeth had already planned to kill Banquo and his son without Lady Macbeth's knowledge. Uh, Whereas in this case, like Miki and his son, Asaji has to talk him into it, and it takes a while. Uh, And... We get that, and it becomes clearly obvious that that happens, even though, unlike in most Macbeth adaptations, we don't actually see Miki being killed. In this case, it's just Miki's horse comes back riderless. That, by the way, is something you'll also notice in a lot of Kurosawa films. The uh, The horses always seem to know what's going on, even if the people don't, but, you know, we'll save that for another day. Uh, Yeah, there is the scene... There is the banquet scene, basically, where Washizu goes mad and sees the ghost of Miki and just starts, you know, cursing at it, yelling at it. Uh, In this case, he's lunging at it with a sword. And uh, not too blatantly, but says something to the effect of, come and I'll slay you again. So he kind of lets it slip that he he knows that Miki's dead. Because before this, he was just sort of like a feigning ignorance about why he was taking so long. You know, this isn't like him. Where is he? But there's also, you know, speaking of Shakespeare, there's the Kyogen dance going on by this old man who was invited to the feast. Uh, Kyogen is a part of no theater. Um, uh, For those of you who know uh, Greek, ancient Greek theater, it's essentially their version of a satyr play. Or satyr, satyr, I don't know, whatever you want to, pronounce it, I'm pretty sure it's Seder, but uh, the Seder plays were short comedic plays that were done in between the tragedies as a sort of little intermission. Uh, Commedia dell'arte, if you prefer the sort of Renaissance Italian version. But they were generally more comic, generally more down-to-earth than the No plays, and they were uh, shorter and performed in between the longer ones. And there's a chant that was written for the movie. So this isn't like a classic one, but it's written in the proper style. And it's a very, very close description to the events leading up to this point. Um, You might just want to look up like Throne of Blood uh, banquet scene on YouTube. You can probably get an idea of what it's like. But it did remind me of that scene in Hamlet where Hamlet's um, trying to determine whether or not Claudius is guilty. And he says, all right, I am going to hold to commission these uh, traveling actors to perform a play. And the play is going to have a murder scene that is very, that is pretty much exactly what the, what my dad's ghost said was the method of his death at my uncle's hands. And if he, and I'll be able to tell if he's guilty or not based on his reaction. Uh, The play is the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. That's the vibe I got, basically. That's how the quote went. And I do like the, the way Michael Jack said it in the commentary. Was that Kurosawa, probably because he was working with a film adaptation, not a stage play, is that he took some of the more famous aspects of this play and took them a little step further. Like the scene where... You know, Lady Macbeth has gone mad. She's sleepwalking. She's trying to, like, wash the blood that's not on her hands off her hands, and there's just nothing there. Well, in this case, Asagi does that. And not only is she trying to, you know, not only is she sleepwalking and trying to wash the blood from her hands when her hands don't have blood on them, but she's trying to wash them in a wash basin that doesn't even have water in it. And when Washizu, like, you know, tries to you know, talk with her. And even after he like pulls the basin away, she doesn't react. So she's that far gone. And as for the forest, the, you know, the whole Burnham wood coming to Dunsinane scene, you know, he receives the exact same uh, prophecy in that case that was never typically shown on stage due to the phys- physical constraints just explained later with dialogue. But the Burnham Wood scene is replicated here, and the soldiers marching on the castle, like, they've uh, cut down some shrubbery. Uh, Some of the larger trees, they're pulling on a set of carts. And there's a great deal of fog, which was created with the help of some big fog machines. And some fans to, like, make the wind... uh, to kick up enough wind so that the branches would start swaying around. Uh, Yeah, it's a... (laughs) Uh, Curacao was a big fan of telephoto lens and using like that, uh, using the wind machine, the fog, the telephoto lens so that the image is kind of flattened and compressed. There's this high angle shot. Cause you're looking down from the castle walls and it's in slow motion. It's honestly, it's, it's honestly, it's really, really creepy when you're seeing it for the first time. So, yeah, like I mentioned earlier, um, He delayed his attempt at making his own version because he found out that uh, Orson Welles... I don't know when he got this notice. Um, Some of the wording seems to suggest that he found out after Orson Welles released his adaptation. Um, Some suggest that he found out before that one was done. But it is at least as early as the completion of Rashomon in 1950 that he wanted to adapt Macbeth. He wrote the screenplay with three other writers. Uh, funnily enough, only one of the screenwriters had actually read Macbeth, other than him. And he pitched this to Studio Toho, which was one of the big studios in Japan at the time. I don't know if they still are. Um, you know, I don't know what happened to them. I don't know if they're still around and just under a different name or structure. But So it was this. It was Revenge. And another famous one that I'm going to cover someday is The Hidden Fortress. Uh, So it was those three, and he agreed to produce them. And funnily enough, the guy who was actually pegged originally to direct Throne of Blood was Ishiro Honda, who directed the original Godzilla. But for whatever reason, Toho insisted that Kurosawa direct all three movies himself if they were going to be making it. Uh, So... Honda kind of got typecast a little bit into making the kaiju movies, but you know, fair is fair. As for the actual filming, there's a great little documentary called it's a joy to create. I think it's something like that. Um, so the scenes in the forest in the movie, they were a mix. It was a mixture of uh, shooting on a set on a studio set, and the actual forest around mount fuji um washizu's manor or the north garrison as it's sometimes called and as it's called in the movie it was a set constructed in a little town called Nagaoka, i think i'm pronouncing that right on the izu peninsula so if you go to tokyo it's like like 50 miles to the southwest i want to say Uh, The castle exteriors were also shot on a set constructed on Fuji's slopes, and the courtyard of the castle and the interiors were uh, shot in a pair of studio lots in Tokyo itself. As for the ground in the courtyard, they even went the extra mile. They went to the trouble of hauling some of the volcanic soil from the ground around Fuji to make sure it would match. And they didn't have a lot of people, but they managed to, you know... Uh, find some off-duty military police from a nearby U.S. Marine Corps base to uh, help them, especially when it came to clearing grounds and setting foundations. I I don't know if they were, I don't know if they were paid or if they just thought, you know, we got nothing to do, or if they just thought, oh, you know, might be cool to be, you know, you know, help out with a movie production, and. Honestly, one of the bigger compliments as far as the cinematography goes is that it's so visually striking, even though it's monochrome. Uh, it The contrasts of shading when it comes to the set design and costumes, especially with the lighting, it's it, it just makes everything kind of pop especially, uh, very, very well. Uh, there's a film historian named Donald Ritchie who once wrote that the movie is... And I'm quoting him directly here. A marvel because it is made of so little. Fog, wind, trees, mist, unquote. And, yeah, it's... I mean, in some ways it's very impressive because of the execution, but in a lot of scenes it's very, very minimalist. There's a, There's not a lot going on in any particular scene for most of the movie. It's mostly just, you know, the lead's acting. Um... Another film critic once compared the visual style as similar to that of a uh, which is a type of uh, ink brush painting. It's just black and white. During the commentary from Jack, he he kind of joked that Kurosawa is a man of extremes. He likes heavy rain, hot summers and gale force winds, and a lot of this was done with the help of you know, fans and sprinklers when they were on the studio a lot. But they also used fog machines and dry ice, uh, pretty much throughout whenever it was needed. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Curacao was known for using a telephoto lens, which is basically—it's a lens designed to manipulate the depth perception of its shots. So it makes everything have this sort of tense, compressed, like flattened feeling. Nothing looks uh, quite as deep as it should. Things look a lot. Things look a lot closer than they should be. Uh, just type in like telephoto lens, you'll probably get some good examples of what an image looks like. Uh, he was also known for using several cameras at different angles simultaneously, which was unusual just in any kind of movie at the time. He said that it helped with uh, continuity and you know, gave him some more material to work with when he edited the movie without needing to do extra takes. uh for the you know scenes of the aftermath of a battle or for whenever they were needed really the extras were also very very well coordinated and it's interesting to note that kurosawa in this case in this movie uses his scenes scene transitions in a very very regimented way so if it fades to black or if it fades into the next scene that's basically showing Okay, a little bit of time has passed, but not a lot, and and also for that same one is like wipe transitions. Like if you've if you've seen Star Wars, you know what I mean. Just any of those ones where it just sort of like you just see a little that you just see like one side of the screen go to the next scene, and then the other just follows after it. But if it's a straight cut as Jack explained to me, if it just, like, like no intermission, no fade-out, no wipe, if it just straight cuts to something else, then it's essentially showing, okay, this is happening as the, at the same time, or roughly at the same time, as the scene you just saw. So we get these moments where we cut to a group of unknown characters uh, discussing for a brief moment the events up to this point. Like, you'll see, like, it transitioned from one area to another. And then you'll see like the guards at the watchtower, some of the people working at the manor and they're discussing, you know, the events that led up to this point. As I said before, it's a, it's a chorus break. They're just sort of there to, um, in a way fill in the blanks for us, but I think also to, you know, give a little bit of depth, uh, you know, the side characters and the, like the less important, Okay, sorry, not less important people, the you know, the non-nobles, basically, in Japanese society at the time. How they would be feeling about this when they were this close to it. Uh, especially near the end, when things start to go off the rails for Washizu, you see these... I mean, at one point, it's like officers talking, and then it goes down to foot soldiers, and they're starting to feel a little antsy they're a little apprehensive about this to the point where they're actually starting to doubt the, you know, reputation of the castle that it's basically impregnable. But yeah, it's just there to add a little bit of, um, tension to it as, because you're seeing people that aren't involved directly in the action, how they're reacting to this. And I think that's a very, um, helpful bit of drama. It, It kind of enriches the, you know, the scenery, basically, and the story. On to the cast, and this is, like, Toshiro Mifune and Akira Kurosawa have been referred to as one of the most solid actor-director partnerships in history. I think Toshiro Mifune is the one playing the main role of Washizu, but he and Kurosawa, I think, worked together on, like, 16 or 17 films, which means that out of the 30 films that Kurosawa directed in his life, Mifune was in a, over half of them. I mean, it's not entirely um, unusual. Uh, Toho, the studio, was a stock company, so there was a general trend towards a lot of the directors working with them using the same actors over and over again. A lot of the actors here had previously had also worked with a... Kenji Mizuguchi and Yasujiro Ozu, who were two other really big name Japanese directors from back in the day. Uh, much of the cast here, and they don't all have like big roles, but they had worked previously with Kurosawa on Seven Samurai, uh, probably one of his most famous, and it was later remade into the Western called The Magnificent Seven with Yul Brynner. Lady Asaji is played by a wonderful actress, actually, uh, Isuzu Yamada. She had a remarkably long career. She started when she was like 12, and I think she was still getting work basically until her early 80s, and then eventually passed away in 2012 of all, all years of multiple organ failure. But yeah, she lived to be 95. She was acting for like better part of 75 years, which is really impressive. Uh, Not only had she worked with these, with both of them before, but this wasn't even the only film that year where she worked with both of them. Uh, They adapted the play by the uh, Bolshevik activist Maxim Gorky called The Lower Depths, and she was, you know, in a starring role, starring opposite Mifune, and it was directed by Kurosawa. And I think that's also one of the things that makes this movie so great is that. There's a synergy here. It's not just that the director and his crew that they know how to work with these people and vice versa, but there's a sense that each each camp as it were, you know, the on-screen and the off-screen are kind of bringing out the best in each other just because they know who they're working with and, you know, what they're capable of. And honestly, uh this is At first I thought this wasn't as, you know, lasting, it didn't have as much of a legacy as some of his other stuff, but I was wrong. Uh, you know, Seven Samurai and Rashomon are far more well-known in the West, at least. Uh, the former, as I said, was the inspiration for the Western Magnificent Seven. And the latter's framing device, you know, where you've got, you know, multiple characters uh, telling their story, and it's presented in a different way each time. Well, that's been used in a ton of Western movies and, well, okay, not Westerns. <laughs> I'm sure there's probably a Western out there, but I just mean like movies and TV shows made in the West. Um, Actually, the second ever Dispatch, like I said, The Last Duel did this very well. And as far as The Hidden Fortress, like, uh, you know, you watch it, major elements of it are incorporated into... You know, a certain a certain lovable little seventy sci-fi film called Star Wars. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a ripoff, because that's going a little too far. But I, you know, there's enough there's enough difference from the original that I don't consider it a ripoff. And there's a lot that's borrowed from movies like the Do Little Raid about World War II. So, you know, it's not a ripoff, but there is some serious influence. The two sort of like kind of annoying uh, kind of comic relief peasant characters that were kind of the audience POV for all this, they are basically the inspiration for R2 and 3PO. But I'm getting off topic. (laughs) But yeah, Throne of Blood has had its fair share of influences. Uh, If you've ever seen Carrie, the death scene for Piper Laurie's character, Carrie's mom, it was inspired by the end scene of this. It's just that in this case, it's just that in that case, Carrie was using you know her telekinesis to throw knives at her instead of you know just having a bunch of people feather her with arrows. Uh, Satoshi Kon's anime film Millennium Actress also has a reference to Throne of Blood in the character of the Forest Witch. And Roman Polanski, when he made his adaptation of Macbeth in 1971 he himself has admitted that he had several stylistic influences from Kurosawa and this movie won several awards, including best actor for Mifune, uh, best art direction, best actress for Isuzu Yamada for a bunch of um, critics awards in Japan. And although it did not win that year, it wasn't, it did get Akira Kurosawa a nomination for the Golden Lion, which is the highest prize you can get at the Venice Film Festival. And in Japan, that year in 1957, it was the second highest grossing film in the entire country. And this was kind of mind-bending to read, but I heard this. In 1957, BFI, British Film Institute, premiered the first annual London Film Festival. Not only did this film play there, but it was actually the first movie to play there. And it was wonderfully received by all accounts. Laurence Olivier, the famous actor, lavished it with praise. He personally congratulated Kurosawa on his achievement. And I think he probably felt a bit of kinship with Kurosawa because Olivier actually tried to get, um, he put on his own sort of, you know, personalized at ad- stage production of it, which was apparently one of the best by most, uh, theater critics accounts, but, he wanted to bring it to film, film, and for whatever reason, he just couldn't get the money to do it. So, yeah, I think he was probably just really, he was at, he was proud by proxy of Kurosawa. Uh, yeah, I don't want to linger on this too much because otherwise, I'm just talking about you know how great the movie is, and probably anyone who's you know into this type of movie would tell you that. Uh, but if you don't mind that there's such a heavy theater influence on the movie, because I know that when you see something theatrical in the sense of like a stage play and you see it in film, it comes off a little stilted and hammy just because on the stage you want to project for the audience. But in a movie that just feels like a little intrusive, I guess it feels a little stilted and hammy because, you know, like there's no way people people don't actually project act like this but i mean if you don't mind that honestly check it out it's a sort of blend of kurosawa's earlier style but it has a tone of like pessimism and just sort of looking into the void as it were that wouldn't come into his work until much later like with uh well for example ron which is another samurai film which adapts a Shakespeare story. In that case, it's King Lear. But, yeah, I, I'm. there's a reason I chose this for my second regular episode. It's one of my favorites from him, and it's one of my favorite samurai movies overall. Anyway, before I leave off, I do just want to be upfront with everyone. I still haven't decided what um, episode, sorry, what movie or movies I'm going to be doing for my next regular episode. I'm thinking I want to stay on my Criterion movies for now just to play it safe because a lot of them have, like, so, so, so much special features I can dig into for information. But I also think maybe I want to start working on a sort of director spotlight. You know, pick a director I like, uh, uh, highlight his or her filmography, basically. Um, I I don't know yet. If you want an update, when I do... I'll post them on my Twitter and Instagram pages. So again, that's uh, JTb Real Weird, all one word for Twitter, and it's um, Real Weird Podcast on Instagram. Um, underscores between the, you know, words for that one. If you want to follow on either of those, I do have uh, some stuff up there. I will be posting updates there periodically. But yeah, everything's still kind of up in the air for right now. I do have a lot of ideas for the next regular episode, so don't worry. It just might, I I can't promise what it will or will not be. But at any rate, I'll be posting the dispatches ASAP anyways, so you'll have something to hold you over until then. So anyway, for now, signing off. Take care wherever you are. Stay safe. Bye.